Hello everyone, welcome to the Doctor Who Show episode 10. I'm joined here as always with David. How are you David? I'm good thanks Rob, how are you? I'm not too bad at all. It, I was going to say it's been a long time since we last spoke uh, on the show, it's been a month, but then I realised we've been doing class episodes of late too, which we'll probably get to in a minute as well. So it hasn't been that long since we actually spoke if people have been listening to all of our output on the feed. No, that's that's true. Plus, they've had their other little bits of the feed to keep them occupied for the last month as well, which is good. Yes, which probably leads me to, to chat about that just for a second, because I don't want to bore people with housekeeping or anything like that. But uh, the Doctor Who show, I started off as a magazine-type show with lots of people contributing lots of segments like, you know, bits of a magazine. And it proved to be quite popular. It has been quite popular. But... Over the last couple of months, I've sort of thought in my own life, listening to podcasts, hey, podcasts are 30 minutes, 40 minutes. They're really good for commutes. And and I'm really enjoying those. And if I look down my podcast list and I see a whole bunch of podcasts and some of them are 30 or 40 minutes and some of them are like two hours, I might grab the 30 or 40 minute ones first. And I thought, you know what? We could just deconstruct the show and, and the feed becomes the show. And we just do everything we've always done but it just becomes bite-sized for people now. And, and that's kind of what people might have already noticed out there. We're starting to break off everything. The A to Z is separate, Tata's library is separate, and so on. The only thing that's still attached to us as of this episode is Letter Lords, but as of next month, Letter Lords will be its own show on the feed as well. So what do you make of the changes, David? Look, I think that it gives people a bit more choice. So if they just want to listen to their favourite segments, they can. Ooh. But if they want to save it all up for a month and put it together as a playlist like one big show they can do that as well they can do they can do and i and i know it's really resonated with stuff like the the uh the a to z by ian martin which is only like seven or eight minutes this month it's a really quick thing and you think i don't have time for an hour and a half long podcast but i can listen to seven minutes and so people will grab it and that's great because we'd love people to hear what we do and tell their friends and all that kind of good stuff please review us on itunes folks <laughs> and, <laughs> that's right and it does mean that something like the a to z does get a bit of special attention which it absolutely deserves because it is quite hilarious even if he left off the invasion as a story that starts with i and is actually a very very good story it's one of those things isn't it i mean someone brought up that he should have done uh ian martyr as well uh and and i sort of jumped in on twitter i said oh look he can do him as uh sullivan comma harry when we do s that's <laughs> uh, <laughs> still to come <laughs> Alrighty, so that's the housekeeping out of the way. As I said, I didn't want to go on and on about it, but that's uh, that's what's happening with the feed. Um, no, so what we should mention about the feed, obviously, is that one of the big things that's popped up in the last week is our special reaction episodes about class. Yes, absolutely. These have been a lot of fun for us to do. We're getting the, the show pretty much in sync with the UK, and, and we're sitting down on Sundays. Well, we've only done it once, so Sunday singular. And uh, reviewed a couple of eps last Sunday, and we're going to do it again tomorrow. Absolutely. First thing I do when I wake up now is pull out the iPad and watch class. But as the week's gone on, I've become more and more fond of this show, and I've actually found I'm looking forward to watching episode three tomorrow. Me too, actually. I'm I'm seeing negativity online, uh, even from some people we know and and we like. But yeah, I, I'm seeing nothing wrong with it. It's it's competent. It does what it says on the box. It, you know, we're not the demographic, perhaps, but it's it's good fun. Yeah, look, absolutely. I I think the only in inverted commas criticism you can make of it at this stage is that it's not a broadly pitched show. Mm. So is it going to appeal to? everybody of every age and every demographic no it's not but it's not trying to 
So if it hits a chord for you and you like it, which I think it has for us, that's great. If it doesn't, that's okay. That's that's allowed. Yeah, look, one of the the criticisms I've seen of that isn't isn't even so much that oh it's it's violent and it's gory. It's people saying oh a show with the doctor in it shouldn't be so violent and gory that young children who want to see the doctor can't see him in it. What do you make of that? It's a really quite a valid piece of comment. Um, and I and I guess if you were somebody who was the parent of kids and you you are being responsible and checking what they do watch i can understand why you'd say that because you'd have a kid going i want to watch doctor who and they're going well this isn't doctor who for you so i appreciate that but i think it would be a shame to not do the series because of that one problem yeah exactly right and i mean i uh, to one of these people i said look there used to be this series of books called the new adventures and they got very 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 adult in places they had the doctor in them too and this person said, well, it's not quite the same thing. A TV show and a book is, is different. And I thought, oh, well, it is and it isn't because it's still Doctor Who, you know. <laughs> but, but even with something like the Harry Potter movies, I know parents who will let their kids watch the first couple of Harry Potter movies but say, you know what, the, old, the other ones are actually for slightly older kids and as you grow up, we'll let you watch more of the movies. So it's not unique to Doctor Who, I don't think. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I guess if you grew up with the Harry Potter movies as a kid, I, I didn't. I was already an adult, obviously, when they came out. But <laughs> for those, know. yeah, for those who grew up with them, that's what happened because they only came out every year, and you sort of had grown up with them and the books too, for that matter. Yeah, but I, I have friends now with kids who are you know seven, eight, nine, mm. and are discovering Harry Potter, and they're saying, okay, we're we're actually going to stagger letting our kids discover Harry Potter over a bit of time because the books do grow up, and they're not actually appropriate for an eight-year-old to dive straight into, you know, the seventh or eighth movie. I think that's very wise. Anyway, uh, that with that out of the way, uh, that's our little plug for our class episodes. We will have one out uh, probably around the same time this episode drops. So if you look at the feed, you'll have us here on this episode and on a class episode as well. And let's face it, if you're somebody who doesn't want to watch class, you can just listen to our podcast on the way to work and you can pretend you've watched it and be a real Doctor Who fan. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like it's like reading the blurb of a book for doing your book report. Yep, it's the Cheetah's Guide to Class. Actually, that's what we should have called the podcast, actually. <laughs> that's, that's quite a cool name. Oh, that's a shame. But speaking of cool names... Yes. We have had our first sneak peek at the return of Doctor Mysterio, the Christmas special coming out in, what, it must be about six weeks. Yeah, gosh, don't... Look, just don't remind me. It's, it's coming up far too quick. <laughs> Christmas, that is, not Doctor Who. I'm, I'm glad Doctor Who's coming back. Yeah, so what did you make of it, Rob? Well, it's interesting because this uh, little video that dropped its part, uh, talking heads, you know, Moffat and Compaldi are talking about the episode and its part footage. And there's also something else tacked onto the end that we'll probably get to uh, in, in a moment. I've got to say, I, I, although I said I'm looking forward to Doctor Who coming back because I am, I've got mixed feelings about this. I, I just don't know how this whole superhero thing is going to go. Um, I know I think they're going to take a funny sort of angle with it, and it might be a bit ironic and fun and, and stuff, but oh, I don't know. I always get nervous around Christmas time because the episodes can be so odd. Yeah, look, that, that that's true. Having a sense of foreboding about the Christmas episodes is not an unreasonable thing based on the history, but... Given the superhero fetish that's just around in popular culture at the moment, I quite like the idea of Doctor Who doing a bit of a spin on that. Mm. And if there's any actor and or character that could really quite puncture that whole superhero shtick, 
it's Peter Capaldi as the Doctor. Yeah. So the potential's there for this to actually be quite fun. And it actually reminds me of the Press Gang episode, Unexpected, where Moffat also does a um, wonderful little take on a sort of superhero slash science fantasy show um, starring uh, Michael Jaston, actually, was the guest actor for that episode, episode of Press Gang. So it'll be interesting to see what Moffat does with this. And I'm quite curious. I liked what I saw. I love the New York setting because I love New York. The talking heads, are, you know, you, you sort of just laugh at that because no talking head on any of these is ever going to say, you know what, this isn't the best work we've done and I actually <laughs> prefer the others. <laughs> you know, what else are they going to say? Yeah, you have to wait for 20 or 30 years to go by before the, the truth starts to come out from people. But uh, yeah, look, um, it's interesting on the video, Moffat is talking about superheroes and he says Clark Kent is the greatest superhero, which I thought was interesting because Clark Kent is not a superhero per se, the persona that is. And uh, he says how, you know, Superman is a god, but he has to pretend to be an ordinary guy. I'm assuming that sort of plays into the, the themes and the storyline of this episode. Perhaps, I mean, there's a, there is a scene where I think the superheroes dropped his glasses, Clark Kent style, and jumped out the window and the Doctor has turned around and had a look. At, at least it looks like that in the footage. And so maybe there is a bit of a, you know exploration of what it means to be a superhero uh, maybe the superhero is more in his uh, day-to-day persona than the superhero persona um, maybe the doctor doesn't realize it's two different people you know hilarity will ensue i'm sure at some point and hey yeah, M- matt well, lucas well, is in it yay yeah i i uh, i wasn't going to mention that rob because apologies i have nothing nice to say <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't like Matt Lucas. I don't like his comedy. I don't like his acting. I didn't much like his character in the last Christmas special, but that's okay. It was only a minor part I could sort of put to the side. I don't want him back, but we'll see how he goes. Yeah, look, I'm I'm slightly different to you in the sense that I've seen him do things that I've really enjoyed. And when I've watched him as Matt Lucas, like in interviews, uh, he recently did... Or in the past year, he did a... Um, do you know Julia Zamiro's TV show here on the ABC where she drives around celebrities to their old houses and schools and stuff like that? I, I know of it, but I haven't seen it. Uh, Julia Zamiro's Home Delivery is the show. And she did a series or two here in Australia, but then she went over to the UK, and I think because she's mates with Stephen Fry and his sort of gang, like Alan Davis and so on, she got a few of them on board. And, and one of the episodes had Matt Lucas in it. And, and it was quite interesting to hear about him growing up and how he lost his his hair at a young age, you know, because he doesn't even have eyebrows, if, if you notice. And, you know, what he went through at school and all this sort of stuff. It was really, really interesting. I thought, oh, I, I, I like Matt Lucas. So I'm, I'm maybe even a little different to you in the fact that I, I don't mind him at all. But... I didn't like him in the last Christmas special when I heard he's coming back for multiple episodes of this year, even though he's meant to be in a, a head just in a robot. I'm thinking, no, please, no. Oh. I just hope that it's a case of Moffat thought, I've got a really clever, interesting idea of what to do with Matt Lucas's character, and they've asked him back, rather than Matt Lucas saying, hey, I'm happy to turn up again, and going, quick, get him back, put him in it, just, just write him in it, I don't care what he does, just put him in it, it's Matt Lucas. I hope it's the former rather than the latter. But I get why if you're a showrunner and Matt Lucas says, I'll I'll turn up, you don't say no. Yeah, particularly when, however you slice and dice it, the ratings were down by about a million people. You know, people talk about, oh, but there's iPlayer and there's this and there's that. But really, when you include all of that stuff, the ratings were still about a million people down. 
you know, and I'm sure they want to claw that back somehow. So I think it's going to be a funnier, wackier series, something a bit different maybe, and Matt Lucas is going to play into that somehow. Yeah, so look, I, I'm I'm not keen on it, but I will do my best to go in with an open mind. I must admit, though, when I was watching the uh, sneak peek trailer thing, I did for a moment think the guest actor was Patrick J. Adams from Suits, and I got very excited until I <laughs> realised it wasn't. Oh. <laughs> now, tacked onto the end of that trailer was uh, something else that I'm sure you'd like to talk about, because, damn it, you've seen it and I haven't. Yes, so they had a trailer for Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, which is a new show starting on BBC America, and they've been doing a lot of uh, combined interviews and combined panels and events with class over in America. So it, it's got a bit of a link, but the Dirk Gently series is obviously based on the writings of Douglas Adams, who wrote for Doctor Who, was the script editor for Doctor Who. Absolutely. And yeah, so, so there's some real Doctor Who links in this thing, but this series has been written by Max Landis, who has done a couple of movies I've really enjoyed, particularly the movie Chronicle, for anyone who knows it. Mm -hmm. um, he's also the son of John Landis, who did the Blues Brothers, so serious, you know, family cred. Absolutely. Uh, it stars Elijah Wood, of course, from Lord of the Rings fame. And the main actor playing Dirk Gently is Samuel Barnett, who, Rob, you and I both have a particular interest in this actor. Yes, I'm not ashamed to say Samuel Barnett is my man crush. And I would like to see him play the Doctor one day. Something I've been saying for years, in fact, particularly when he was in Desperate Romantics and he had the longer hair and the frock coat, and I was thinking, just put this guy in Doctor Who right now, he'd be like Davison crossed with McGann, and it would be fantastic. And yeah. ever since, I, I even tweeted him at times saying, you'd be you'd be good as Doctor Who. And he replied to me once and said, wouldn't that be dreamy? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it would. And of course, he's done some big finish as well. So he's not, he's not dumb to Doctor Who. He knows what Doctor Who is. I think he'd love to do it, probably. Um, what are your thoughts on Samuel Barnett? I've just gushed. Oh, no, look, I, I understand exactly why you feel the way you do about him. He's brilliant in the History Boys, uh, both the stage play and the movie he was great in the beautiful uh, beautiful people he's just one of those really wonderful quirky actors and i think if doctor who fans check out when they're able to at least the first episode of dirk gently's holistic detective agency you'll see exactly what we're talking about but it has got that wonderful quirkiness of douglas adams and i think a lot of fans both of our generation and i think fans of the new series really appreciate so this could be a nice little series that I think a lot of fans out there will appreciate. It's still hard to get hold of because it's only been released in America. Mm -hmm. But if you can, I recommend checking this one out. Yes, as I prefaced earlier, I've not seen it yet myself. I am looking forward to seeing it very, very much. But but even in the clips that I've seen, and more and more clips are coming out, of course, now that you know episodes are, are finally going out there. I can see that this is, again, someone I would just like to play the Doctor. Maybe not the same as Dirk Gently, but particularly when we think of Capaldi being an older Doctor, we're, we're going to swing back to a younger guy. I could see Samuel Barnett even doing a Matt Smith-like turn if he was called upon to do so. Well, Although, well I, was about to, I was about to say, you, you talk about he, he wouldn't play the role as he plays Dirk Gently. It would be a different take. But underlying his performances, there's always a particular little sort of eccentricity or quirkiness or, or, or aliveness if you like and that does remind me of matt smith whatever matt smith plays you do get this sort of matt smith 
undertones of it that, that, that comes through. And I think it's exactly the same sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. And and he, whatever way he did do it, I mean, I was thinking he could even play it in a in a sweeter, softer sort of way to be more Davison-like, more McGann-like maybe when McGann, when McGann's Doctor was, you know, the nicest man in the universe before he became all battle-hardened and so on. <laughs> uh, it would be... Oh, look, don't get me started on how McGann should have fought the Time War and not John Hurt. You know, let's not go down that rabbit yep, hole. Yep. We, uh, we all agree, move on. <laughs> yeah, quickly move on. I, I just think he would be fan bloody tastic and you know i'll probably tweet at him again soon you'd be a really great doctor i think he stopped <laughs> replying to me these days well they do have laws against that sort of thing but yeah <laughs> no couldn't agree more and um yeah i hope that fans do get a chance to check this out yeah and as well as your thumbs up to dirk gently i've seen uh, a number of our twitter followers talking about it our, our american twitter followers at least and they've all been like oh this is great you know i i wanted to watch a little bit before bed and i ended up watching the whole thing or whatever the case might have been they've they've all really jumped on it in, in a way that people didn't really jump on the previous time they tried dirk gently for television well what, what what's different about this and it's a really good example of of this sort of thing is they've taken the style and the concepts and the universe of douglas adams but they've unashamedly said we're making a television series for 2016 so it needs to actually work first and foremost as a television series and then bring in the douglas adams stuff as well but allow you to actually you know write episodes that are going to work rather than just being a slavish adaption of the books and I think that's what's really important. You, you you have to make works work for the template and for the genre and for the format. And they're doing this here, and so it does work. And for modern TV, I dare say, you know, not having seen it, but... <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it feels like a piece of modern television, which, you know, if you adapted a book that was written in about 1985-ish, I think. Yeah, the first one, at least, yeah. Yeah, it, you know, it... it if you were slavishly to adapt that, fans would be very happy, but you'd get a readership of about 107. <laughs> so, you know, you've got to appeal to a mass audience who's never read the book. And let's face it, there are people out there now who probably have never read Douglas Adams. Um, it's a long time since he's had a work published because he did pass away quite some years ago now. Yeah, that that's scary to think, actually, because there's not even a lot of content around anymore to sort of remind people that, oh, this was based on a book, go and, go and try the book. I mean, there was the Hitchhiker's Guide movie, and when it finally came out, gosh, what a disappointment that was. There's probably another rabbit hole we shouldn't go down. Yes, no, that's true. But yeah, Dirk Gently, Solistic Detective Agency. Check it out, guys. Alrighty. Speaking of books and authors and things like that, next year is going to see four new Doctor Who books come out, but probably not the books you're expecting. They're going to be... <laughs> did you like that? <laughs> I did, I did. <laughs> They're going to be Mr. Men books. Uh, Mr. Men was the uh, series of uh, tiny little books that we used to read as kids back in the day by Roger Hargraves. Roger Hargraves <laughs> has been dead for an awfully long time, but his son, Adam, has uh, started drawing different Doctors as Mr. Men-type characters, and the first four to come out are going to be Doctor First, Doctor Fourth, Doctor Eleventh, and Doctor Twelfth. And we've seen the covers for these so far, and I think these could be a bit of fun. Although it is kind of weird, the, the Capaldi, the Doctor Twelfth one, he's there, he's a shape, he's a triangle or a square or something, wearing boots, and he's all one colour. It, it sort of looks like he's naked, or is, or is that just me putting <laughs> adult sort of thoughts onto it? I don't think you meant to look at it that way, Rob. Oh dear, I did. <laughs> Um, I don't know what to make of these things. Uh, they'll, they'll no doubt be a wonderful little kitsch piece of um, merchandise or collectibles. Um, 
beyond that, I'm really not really sure what to make of it. I, I'll be honest, it didn't strike me as something that I've gone, oh my God, I've got to get my hands on those. I've just gone, well, actually, my first reaction was, is this just a send-up? Like, is this for real? Yeah, apparently just, it is. <laughs> it was just so bizarre. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think they're going to be like like Mr. Men books in terms of the characters just doing mundane things. I think they'll probably have Doctor Who-type storylines in them, which is interesting. I mean, they can't be very complex because they're not very big books. I'm I'm thinking, look, if these are cheap, if these are like five bucks a pop or something, I'll probably just grab them just for the sake of having them. I think that's probably what they're counting on. <laughs> exactly. Um, also, quickly speaking of books, and this is without notice, Class is putting out a range of three books. Um, well, they're out now, actually. Mine are winging their way from the UK. I think you might have some on order, too. Uh, yes, I've ordered from a local distributor, so I think mine will be a little bit behind yours. Yeah, and this is this is something I think we'll talk about maybe more on the class episodes and maybe even on the TARDIS library as well if we review them. But just worth noting, folks, there are three uh, class novels coming out. I think James Goss has written one. A couple of other really good writers have written the other two. And... Here's some news. I um, tweeted at one of the uh, publisher-type folks over in the UK who's involved with these. I said, hey, can you read these, you know, without having seen all the episodes? And she said, yeah, absolutely. As long as you've seen, say, the first couple of episodes, you can read these books. So they're not set after the first series or anything like that. You You can read them straight away. So I certainly will be. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's good. Yeah. Now, another piece of news that's come out. We mentioned Matt Smith. His big, big, big new series is finally got a launch date of November the 4th, which is not far away at all. No, no, not at all. I mean, this episode goes out on the 30th of October, so it's less than a week away. I'll be looking forward to this series, which is called The Crown, whether or not Matt Smith was in it, but the chance to see his take on the Duke of Edinburgh adds an extra dimension to why I want to see this series. And apparently it's got one of the biggest budgets for a series like this uh, ever. It's just a massive, massive budget. Yeah, look, I'm probably the same as you. I'd, I'd watch this without him in it. I, I quite enjoy uh, history uh, in general and English history in particular. I mean, I watched a, a documentary oh, a couple of months ago on Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip when she was yet to be the Queen and they were living, gosh, was it in Malta? Yes, Malta. Mm, and they ha- and they had this wonderful little life in Malta, you know, early married life and, you know, just went through the things they did and so on. And then, of course, she was torn away had to become the queen because her father died very unexpectedly and everything went from there and this is kind of what this show is dramatizing i believe you know her having to take on this huge responsibility at a very young age and i find that kind of thing quite interesting yeah so they're actually planning to do multiple series of this so the first one is very much i believe from the courtship of elizabeth and philip up until shortly after she becomes queen and i think they deal with some of the stuff around princess margaret and all that but they plan to go right through and do her entire reign so i don't know whether matt smith's going to play the duke in increasing levels of makeup as it goes on or they're going to recast as it goes on i don't know about that but it it looks as though it's going to be the modern version of stuff like the six wives of henry the eighth elizabeth r edward and mrs simpson you know those sort of really classic masterpiece theater Mm. things that we saw and so to see matt smith in the middle of that i I think that this is what Matt Smith should be doing. I, I don't think he should have been off in Hollywood trying to get parts in Terminator films. He should be doing this because he's so good at this character drama. This is this is what he this is his niche. This is him. Do it well, Matt. Yeah, exactly. And not just Terminator films. What was that one that he shaved his head for? 
and the famous clip of it he's beating his chest he's got his shirt off and he's just shouting the same phrase over and over again uh, oh i've kind of erased it from my memory do you yeah, know the I, thing i'm talking about I, I know the thing you're talking about and i didn't go and watch it i must confess no it looked weird and i don't mind indie films myself but it looked very odd there's good indie and bad indie, and this looks like trying far too hard and being bad indie. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, Matt certainly has experience playing the older Doctor. He's been under heavy makeup before, so maybe he could pull off an older, you know, uh, Prince Philip. Yeah, look, modern makeup being what it is, it's certainly possible. So, yeah, watch this space. We'll see what happens. But, yeah, The Crown, out on the 4th of November. All righty. Now, here's a topic that I know other podcasts I listen to at least have discussed, but I think it's worth recording here for uh, for posterity, for the ages. Uh, there is a rumour still going around that a classic series writer, well, it's not even a rumour, I think it's been confirmed a classic series writer will be writing in the new season of Doctor Who, series 10. Who do we think it might be? I mean, the, the word on the street for the longest time has been Rona Munro. Yeah, so look, I, I went through and I made a few assumptions. I assume that the writer in question had to be alive. Yes, it would help. I, I assume that they had to be someone who was a current rather than a retired writer, simply because I thought the BBC would be unlikely to ask somebody to write in 2016 when they last wrote for television in 2000 or earlier. So it rules out Uncle Terence. It does. It also rules out somebody like Philip Martin, who had a very strong body of work up until about 2000, but, but he's now very much in retirement or maps does some other work. And it also needs to be somebody, I suspect, who has a proper body of television work, mm. which would rule out people like, for example, Ben Aronovich and Andrew Cartmel, who, although you know Aronovich wrote some scripts for Who, th- those people are writers who have really made their name in the novel world yeah, rather than in the television world. So, you know, a- as much as fans might like to have, you know, Terence Dix or Andrew Cartmel or Philip Martin or whoever sit down and write them, the BBC is just not going to sign up a flagship show to somebody who doesn't have the record of work. And we saw that going right back to 2005 when people who had written for the New Adventures or other books weren't able to write for television, for, for the, the new series because they didn't have that experience writing for television. And the BBC said, we are a professional organisation. You need to have the same credentials we'd want of anybody else absolutely reasonable and i'm glad they've they've done that line so when you take out anybody who's dead or retired or hasn't written much for television rona monroe really does stand out as the obvious candidate which i must say i think is a great thing because i actually between you and me rob yes i actually rate survival as the best story of the 1980s that's a big call why why is that i Love the script. I love the the way that Rona Monroe is able to do multiple levels and multiple tones within it. I love the characters within it. I love the music of the show. I love McCoy's performance. I think it's the best one he does. I think it's the best performance Anthony Ainley ever gives. I love the way the uh, Cheetah People's World is just made to look so wonderfully alien. Mm-hmm. I love the tone of the thing. I just think it's Doctor Who where everything works. Certainly. Absolutely works. So yeah. I, I love Survival, and if Ronan's writing again, then I'll be very, very happy. Yeah, Survival certainly stands out because, you know, people, everyone says this nowadays, so I'm not saying anything new, but it has that real urban feel that the new series of Doctor Who certainly had and has. Mm. Uh, but that was quite weird in the 80s to sort of see, you know, 
corner shops and feeding cats and you know, things like this <laughs> right. in a suburban street. Yeah, no, it, it was. It was quite a stylistic difference, although it, it didn't come out of nowhere. Season 26 was going into that direction anyway, and this was the... I mean, survival was the natural end of the direction that Cartmore was going in from Paradise Towers onwards. Mm. And it takes him um, 11 stories to get to survival, but you can see the ship being turned to get there over those stories. Oh, absolutely. But, but yeah, survival to me is the climax of everything he was doing. And I, I just think, you know, it, it works so well, whether it's production, music, acting, but the script particularly, I think is really, really good. Yeah, and look, also in Rona Munro's favour is the fact she's Scottish. We know Moffat loves a Scot, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe less facetiously, she's also a woman. And Moffat has made no secret that he has been looking for more scripts from women. So when you think, you know, she's Scottish, she's a woman, she's written for the show, she's one of the few people from, you know, the old series that could possibly even be counted, all signs seem to be pointing at Rona. Yeah, it's it's a logical conclusion based on what we know. But if we took away all the requirements, Rob, who would you love to see right? Who would who would be your dream pick? Oh, I th- are we including death in that? Oh, uh, look if if you want to look if you want to go there, I'll let you include it. We're not playing for for sheep stations here. No, no, I won't go that far. But you know, Uncle Terence has you know continued to write books all the way through, you know, beyond the target range. He wrote for the New Adventures line, and, you know, he uh, he wrote a, uh, a novella I once read with the Tenth Doctor in it. So he's kept his hand in as a writer. He's still very interested in the show. He has a lot of good thoughts about the show, being um, a more old-school kind of guy, you know, because they're a bit different to maybe how the show is at present. I think he could do something kind of interesting if if he had the chance, but he doesn't have the chance, obviously. he's He's too old, he hasn't worked in TV for a long time, and so on and so forth. No, look, I don't think there's any Doctor Who fan that wouldn't love the idea of seeing by Terence Dix on the front of a modern series uh, episode. But my pick actually would be Chris Boucher. Oh, okay. Yep, yep. Tell me more. Um, Because obviously, look, he wrote three stories for Doctor Who that I think are all classics. Um, Image of the Fendal, The Robots of Death, and The Day God Went Mad are all classics Doctor Who stories. He did wonderful work for Blake Seven. He was pretty good with Star Cops. He's written some great Doctor Who novels since. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's kept his hand in the Cowdor City stuff as an advisor. So I love Chris Boucher's work, and I would love to see him write something for it. Again, he's been retired now for quite a number of years, so yeah. it's very unlikely to be him, but he would be my fantasy pick. All righty. Now, before we move on, confirmed for this series, I mean, we've just been speculating so much about Rona, but confirmed for this series... Writers-wise, we have Stephen Moffat, Mark Gaddis, Frank Cottrell-Boyce, Sarah Dollar, Jamie Matheson, and Mike Bartlett. Mark has even commented, Mark Gaddis, that is, oh, Mark, I'm on first-name basis with him. Uh, <laughs> Mark Gaddis has said, um, Stephen's asked me if I write a sequel to Sleep No More. I'll see if I can do that. If I th- can think of one, I would certainly like to do it because I think the idea is good and the monsters are great. Now, I'm not sure I agree with him on, on much of that. But uh, do you think the Gatter story will be a sequel to, to Sleep No More of sorts? Well, Sleep No More definitely lends itself to a sequel because of the way that the episode ended. It doesn't lend itself to a sequel because the episode was not very good. And conceptually, I thought the monster just completely failed. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief to Doctor Who to a large extent 
the idea and the conceit within Sleep No More was t- it was a bridge too far for me. But if he's got something interesting to say, well, okay, let's see what he does. Yeah, when we come up to the Gattis episode every season, I think I might really like this or I might not because there are there are stories of his that I think are great. You know, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I actually really like Idiot's Lantern, for example. Interesting. That's not one of mine. <laughs> no, it's not one of a lot of people's, but I actually really quite like that story. But my favourite Gaddis work still remains The New Adventure Nightshade. I think that's a wonderful book. Yeah, and of course, as you mentioned, he's he has written novels as well. Um, I, I read one of his, I think it was in the uh, the PDA range. So once the BBC books took over, they had the past Doctor Adventures, similar to the Missing Adventures that Virgin did. I'm sure he did a Pertwee-type story in that, and that was really good as well. I'll have to cast my mind back to think of that. But yeah, look, his episodes, stuff like The Unquiet Dead, I don't know many people who don't like that. Um, but other episodes, the, the Dalek episode... Uh, it's not his uh, fault the Daleks yeah. changed, though. So it's like, oh, how much do we pin on Mark? How much do we pin on the design? I don't know. It's very confusing. I just see his name on a story. I think this could go either way. Yeah, look, that's that's very, very true. But he has his own style, and he gets out there, and he writes, and we'll see what he can do. Now, the other thing that we've had confirmed about the new series, and I'll quote Stephen Moffat here, we're planning one right now, which is very much an ancient world episode, but I won't tell you which part of the ancient world. So I want to ask you, Rob, and I also want to ask our listeners, Mm -hmm. what part of the ancient world would you like to see a Doctor Who story set in? I'm I'm going to be very boring because we've been there before, but probably Rome. Personally, I would would love to see a story in in Rome or perhaps ancient Greece, perhaps with Alexander the Great or something like that. Maybe in in the Marco Polo style where he meets Alexander and they're traveling along doing stuff. That would be quite fun. That's Uh, actually a nice idea. I like that one. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're my sort of favourite bits of the ancient world. I mean, I, I subscribe to podcasts uh, about ancient Rome and Alexander the Great, you know, I, so I really, really like those eras. That's why I gravitate towards them. But I guess it could mean a lot of things, you know, when we talk about the ancient world. There's there's a lot to choose from. What about you? Well, I, I kind of ruled out Rome and Egypt because they've just been done so much, not just by Doctor Who over the years, but by television and films generally. Although, I must admit, the idea of having Peter Capaldi rock up in Rome and having Derek Jacobi play Claudius would actually be very, very cool. Yes. But I don't think we're going to get that somehow. No, sadly. Um, Or get Brian Blessed back to play Augustus. Uh, But I would actually like to see, and I don't know if it's quite the ancient world, but uh, Peru. Ah, yeah. So the Mayan civilizations of Peru, whether it's up around Lake Titicaca, Machu Picchu those sort of South American areas, which we did get a mention of in Death to the Daleks, that the Exelons came along and taught the, the natives how to build in Peru. Not necessarily saying we have to go down that path. It could be a purely historical one, but I think South American is something Doctor Who hasn't done. They've done Central America with the Aztecs, but they haven't done South America. So I'd like to see that. Well, you know, Moffat's trying to appeal to different parts of the world. You know, the, the return of Dr. Mysterio is is an example of that. Yes. I wonder if he would set it somewhere like that to maybe try and appeal to a, a wider worldwide audience. Cynical yeah. me. Yeah, look, it's possible. Um, it will be interesting to see, but I, I, I love my historicals, so I'm quite interested to see what he does with it. But, but listeners, tell us what you think. 
Yes, write in hello at the dwshow.net or send us a tweet or a message on our Facebook or whatever. We'll find it. <laughs> we will. We will. All right. Now, look, before we move on to something I know you're, you're itching to discuss this month and you've actually got some feedback on, I have one one more thing to say, and that's Power of the Daleks. We've, we've spoken about this before, of course. It is getting a, a short cinema run here in Australia and New Zealand as well, possibly around the world too, but I certainly know of our local area better, mm-hmm. better than others. And I've been thinking about this and thinking... That's kind of cool. I guess it's an event. You go along and there's other Whovians and they're probably wearing Tom Baker scarves and everyone's in a good mood. That's that's cool. But does that style of animation look good on a big screen? Because it's not, it's not Pixar. Yeah, that's that's been my hesitation as well. Um, if I'm free and I get to go along to one of these screenings, I, I may well go along. But I'm not going to bust a gut to get there because I'm just not sure that it's going to be well suited to it. And... I actually kind of am happy just to sit down and, you know, on the couch and immerse myself in this story by myself rather than having an audience of Doctor Who fans laughing or cheering or wooting or whatever the case may be. I'm not sure if I actually want that. Yeah, and look, the length, I think, would get to me as well. I'm not sure I actually want to watch all six episodes, isn't it, at at the same time. I, I might want to watch one and then go away and have a drink and sit down and think about it and then come back later. I don't want it to just go blasting through on the big screen. Yeah, but look, it's another way to raise interest. It's another way to raise a bit of attention and, let's face it, get a bit of cash. I'll decide at the last moment if I'm going to do it or not. It is. It is. I'm just hoping it doesn't leave a bad taste in people's mouth. People who haven't really been following it, have never watched a reconstruction of an animated reconstruction, that is. Yeah. And, and they hear, oh, it's been revived, missing story in a really new, innovative way. And, you know, that's all just marketing speak. When they actually see it, and it's sort of like only a step away from South Park with people, you know, like solid oh, solid objects like, shuffling across the screen like they're oh, meant to be the, walking. The, the animation for the Ice Warriors, that was just, that was so South Park. That was awful. Yeah, yeah. And look, I don't think it's going to be much better than that from what I can see. Uh, I just wonder if some people would go along expecting something and getting something else and feeling just a bit ripped off. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. But, um, well, I guess we'll find out. We will indeed. All right, David, the floor is yours. You've wanted to talk about something for at least a couple of weeks that I know of. So what is it? So for reasons I absolutely have no understanding of, I decided to sit sit down a couple of weeks ago and watch The Two Doctors, which I haven't seen for quite a while. And it wasn't very good. Okay. And I actually was sitting there and I was looking at a lot of the faults in that and, and, you know, it's not without its redeeming features. There are some good performances. There's some good sets here and there. And there's some good music here and there. It's It's got good bits. But overall, it's not a very good story. And I think its reputation suggests that. But I was watching and, and looking at a lot of the flaws and thinking, they're actually a lot down to the script. The way the Sontarans are written, you know, with their motivation. Y- yes, their costumes are terrible and they're too tall. Still better Sontarans than Strax, I've got to say. Agreed. But, <laughs> but um, you know, the, the Sontarans aren't written that well. Dastari goes from bad guy to good guy, basically in the space of a scene, and his motivations aren't quite clear. The way the, st- the story is set up in terms of the timings and the length, you know, you have Colin Baker's Doctor basically buggerizing around on the space station while everything important is <laughs> happening in Spain. 
mm-hmm. and the Doctor doesn't get there until stuff later. You have basically the same scene repeated twice where Shockeye takes the companion and puts them out on the kitchen table and he's just about to cut their head off until Shasini interrupts him with something really, really important to do. And then he does <laughs> the same thing with Jamie. You know, yeah. like it's just not a well-written story. Yeah, that's it, interesting. I mean, if I can just jump in, when when you started yeah. talking, I was going to say, now, what was it about it that you didn't like? Was it the length? Was it, you know, the way it was produced? Was it those awful studio sets juxtaposed with the truly nice outdoor mm-hmm. shooting that they did? But no, it sounds like it's all sort of script-based for you. Yeah, look, look for me it is. I mean, there, there are some aspects of the direction that you could certainly criticise, but, you know, no more or less than 80% of doctor who in the 80s let's be honest mm-hmm. I, to me it was down to the script now this is a robert holmes script and i sat there and i thought to myself is this his worst doctor who script and i thought about all the others he did and i thought yes yes this is his worst doctor who script so i put it out there on with your help rob on social media mm. and a lot of people have written in to tell me that i'm wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's the internet <laughs> That's exactly right. So I might start with a bit of their feedback, Rob, before I think we'll actually bring it back to you. Yeah, please, please do. So we got one from uh, Dan Stafford, who is um, tweets at at Dan Talk Doctor Who. And he said, it's hard to deny looking at the roll call for Bob Holmes that he produced very few duds when called upon to write for Doctor Who. And many of his efforts are rightly revered as absolute classics. The Two Doctors, however, is not among their number, being perhaps a triumph of ideas over delivery. Is it his worst, though? While the Ribos Operation and Power of Kroll are equally weak stories, they are rescued by belonging to the Key to Time series. So it is definitely his worst surviving story. The unanswered, and perhaps sadly unanswerable question, is whether The Space Pirates is as poor as fans speculate it is. If so, that could well be his worst story to come from Holmes's pen. Now, we also have a couple of tweets. Can I just uh, jump in there on the Space, yeah, course, on course, the space yeah. Pirates and say, you know what, the Space Pirates might be the next reconstruction they do. Well, <laughs> it's possible. And while, while, look, while, we, while we're mentioning the Space Pirates, I have made it one of my missions in fandom to defend the Space Pirates. Okay. Because, unfortunately, Episode 2 is by far the worst episode there. Episode 1 is a very exciting one. We have a couple of raids on different... Uh, space beacons, the military comes in, there's firefights with the pirates, and it ends with the cliffhanger of the second beacon being blown up. Episode two is the one then when the story pauses and you now introduce the characters properly. You introduce Milo Clancy, you introduce the universe in which they're operating this story, and it it is a very dull episode. But then come the end of episode two, Milo Clancy meets the Doctor and then Jamie and Zoe. They have another space battle with the uh, military, they then go down to the planet, planet Tar, where the pirates are actually doing their stuff. And, and you know, a lot more stuff happens. You get to see a lot more of the actual space pirates. Kevin is a wonderfully well-written Robert Holmes villain. So is the space pirates a classic Holmes in story? No, of course it's not. But I suspect that if we saw the other five episodes, we would see that episode two is by far the weakest. And that's because it's episode two. It's where you allow the plot to stop and you expand the universe after the exciting start to hook you in. So I think that the two Doctors is worse than the Space Pirates. Come on, BBC 2017, Space Pirates. <laughs> Let's make it happen. We're going to make Samuel Barnett the Doctor, and we're going to make Space Pirates the next DVD release. We're going to make Space Pirates great again. 
<laughs> Let's not go that far. <laughs> so on Twitter, we had Gav Wood, who said, it's a great script executed poorly. The exchanges between the second Doctor and Shockeye are priceless. Gav, thank you very much for writing in. I'm going to politely disagree with you on that one. I'm sorry. I didn't get a lot out of those exchanges at all. But if it worked for you, that's what fandom's all about. Hmm. Uh, we had another one from Richard George, who said, not so much weak scripts as weak production values. Power of Kroll being a fine example, Crotons is another one. And, and, and let's face it, I think if you're going for weakest home stories, Power of Kroll and Crotons would be other contenders. I think that Two Doctors is worse, but if you came to me and said Crotons is worse, I'm not going to have a fist fight with you. I, that's not an unreasonable comment, I think. Mm. He also says um, on The Two Doctors, uh, far from being the worst, it's an interesting script, poorly directed. That's a criticism of Peter Moffat. You get a lot... And a lot of the poor stuff was forced upon him, if I remember correctly. That is true. Isaac Dakin says, I say Power of Kroll is his worst script unless Space Pirates is really terrible, as a lot say it is. We've addressed that. Um, we also have an email. Sorry. I was going to say, it's interesting. Power of Kroll is coming up a lot in, in these replies. Yeah, look, it is. I actually think Power of Kroll is quite a clever little story with some reasonable characters. It's just spoiled because the visuals just don't work the the crawl model's fine the refinery model's fine the two of them in one spot don't work at all the crawl model with location filming doesn't work at all mm. but i actually think it's quite a clever script it's not Holmes's best but i, I don't mind the power of crawl i like everything in the key to time series let's be honest <laughs> fair enough what else have you got from our listeners uh so i've got an email from mark at 42 to doomsday hello mark so he says Dear Robin Mark, sorry, Dave, old habit. <laughs> Congratulations on the podcast. It is one of the three best Doctor Who podcasts in Australia that I listen to. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for that, Mark. We appreciate that. Damning with faint praise. Yeah, he does that a lot. He works for a bank. Yes. <laughs> the Two Doctors is a curious beast. I remember in the good old days, when the Five Doctors was announced, there was a collective huzzah from fandom. However, when the two Doctors was revealed as part of the season 22 lineup, it was more of a meh, and I remember the reaction to it being quite mooted, except for New South Wales fandom, who got excited about everything, I have to say, back in those days. <laughs> He's having a dig, I think. Uh, and a justifiable one in this case, I have to say. Oh! <laughs> uh, he goes on to say, whether by this point fans were either now just used to the continual continuity references that the program was serving up, or there was an expectation that at some point a multi-doctor story would happen without needing an anniversary or milestone to hang it from, I don't know, but I do know that in my opinion it was a wasted opportunity. It's no secret that Robert Holmes didn't respond well to shopping lists, but he did quite cope quite well in bringing back a smaller number of returning characters than he was asked to do in the original Six Doctors storyline. The original script for The Two Doctors was set in New Orleans, and when the funding and agreements fell through for this location, Venice was then mooted, but Spain was chosen due to the cheap package deals at the time. Whilst it looks pretty, it doesn't really add much to the final product, and to be honest, it could have been set in the UK without compromising the storyline too much. That's probably a fair comment, I've got to say. The, the Spain stuff's nice, but 
if that was set in Yorkshire, no one would really notice. Mm. Although there probably aren't as many good restaurants in Yorkshire. <laughs> I'll jump in there and say I like it because it just adds a bit more colour. We 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 <laughs> colour when I'm talking about Colin Baker. That's interesting. No, <laughs> I mean in terms of we don't have that much of Colin Baker on on film, and just to have him in some more exotic locations here and there is it just adds to his era for me. Whereas if he was in, say, Yorkshire, it just might look like more of, I don't know, Mark of the Rani or something like that. Yeah, look, I, I, I like that it's set in Spain, but I think Mark's right. If it wasn't, the story wouldn't really change. Oh, not the story, no. No. This was supposed to be the season Biggie, the first six-part story since 1979, the return of the extra-tall Sontarans, the second Doctor and Jamie. So who do they get to direct it? Peter Moffat, the man whose point-and-shoot <laughs> style of direction is as inspiring as matte finish paint and just the magic he weaved on the five doctors and again doesn't elevate the material at all don't hold back mark <laughs> no no look peter moffat's come in for quite a bit of a shellacking these days and i don't know if it's all entirely justified was he the best director of the 80s no was he that awful i don't think so it's workmanlike anyway, workmanlike is a reasonable comment yes yes but was this Holmes's worst script? Mark's now getting to the point. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. No, I don't believe it is. Ian Levine recalled that when he read the scripts, they were beautifully written. And upon hearing the recent audio adaption of the novelization, I was really surprised at how good it is. Holmes's embellishments to the script are wonderful, and compared to the TV version, it is quite an engaging tale. But at the end of the day, its TV counterpart is 45 minutes too long, it's flatly directed, and its greatest crime the violation of the Trade Practices Act by calling the story The Two Doctors and only having them interacting sparingly together in the last 20 minutes of Episode 3, or Episode 6 if you saw it in Australia. Keep punching Mark from 42 to Doomsday. Well, he's stolen my thunder there somewhat because I was going to mention the novel. And I read the novel before I saw the TV episode. And that has always skewed the TV episode for me in the sense that the novel is better. Um, there are some target novels that are much better than their TV counterparts. And I think that's always coloured the TV episode for me. I can watch it. I can see the thing, see the things that you're saying, absolutely. But I have a better story in my head because of the novel, if that makes any sense. You know, no, that, that does make a lot of sense. And I, I agree with you. I, I can see kind of where Robert Holmes is trying to go. I just don't think his script makes it work. But the other side of it, if we're looking at something like The Two Doctors and going, is this his worst script? That's actually not a bad reflection on how good he is because it's not an awful, awful script. It's just not in the same league as Spearhead from Space, Terror of the Autons, Challenge of Wen Chiang, Caves of Andrews, you know, just so many good stories. And he's got a couple of weaker ones in there. That's not a bad record. Yeah, it's one of those stories where it sounds great. It's it's Patrick Troughton, it's it's Fraser Hines, it's it's in colour, it's you know, it's long, it's got great location shooting, you know, there's all these elements that sound great and maybe Jacqueline Pierce. Of course, of course. And there are some great stories about her at the uh, bar. Uh, <laughs> when they're on location. I, I have JNT's um, audio memoirs that he did 
through Big Finish. Oh, he, yes. He, he tells some great stories about being on location on this story. Yeah, it's uh, quite a good listen to those memoirs. Yeah, and the way Jacqueline Pierce would uh, get uh, the bartender's attention. But I'll leave it up to the listeners to go and seek that out <laughs> if they want to hear how she would get the bartender's attention. I think that's for the best. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, look, so many elements seem so good, and, it yeah, it just doesn't come together. Um, but when you ask the question, is it is it his worst Mm, there are some contenders down the bottom of the barrel too. I mean, people are mentioning Power of Kroll for a reason. And, you know, Space Pirates, you know, all facetiousness aside, the jury's maybe out a bit on that until yeah. people can uh, perhaps see more of it, if if ever. I, uh, I have been surprised though, Rob. I thought that a few people would mention the mysterious planet. Good point. Very good which, point, actually. Which, and I was already to defend the mysterious planet, but it actually hasn't popped up at all. In your defense of Mysterious Planet, would you just talk about the, the story in itself without the trial scenes sort of interrupting it, or would you include base, it as base, part of basically, the... Basically, yes. Right. Um, I actually think there's some quite clever stuff in there. As a nice, fun adventure with a few good ideas and a cool robot, it works. Again, not his best work, but I would certainly have it better than some of the others. But it has got a poor reputation, so I thought it might have come up, but it, it hasn't, so... Yeah. I think... Um... There's a line from the second Doctor and two Doctors about... Is it about Andrew Gums? And he, he refers to them as... Not some bastard race. He, he refers to them as uh, some horror... Uh, can you think of the line I'm thinking of? He, he, it's, it's not mongrel race or something, is it? Something like that. It's a very un-second Doctor thing to say. Mm. And it's like... Oh, would he actually say that? Has Bob Holmes forgotten how this character speaks? Yeah, I, I don't know. And, and look, I hate to criticize patrick Troughton, and, and and that's probably not not accurate because Troughton delivers the performance he's asked to deliver but i do feel as though what we get is the second doctor being written as what we've come to think of the second doctor being not what the second doctor actually was very good point yeah i would agree with that mm. so look uh, just um an example of me watching a story during the last month and sparking a bit of debate yeah no thank you for writing in folks that was that was really good i, I love when we get the uh the listeners um writing in like that it, it's always makes me feel so loved when i wake up in the morning and twitter tells me i've got 14 different notifications that you know i feel the warmth of fandom <laughs> that's good it's very it good is, it is very good now before we we close and i talk about what we're going to play next on this episode um is there anything else any uh, unfinished business for you to cover this month so just a little bit of an aside, a little announcement I want to make, Rob, and I haven't told you about this, but Ooh. you you recall um, Richard, who did the Who Teaks Roadshow uh, with us about a week or two ago. That was excellent, uh, about Sophie Aldred's Batman earring, as I recall. That's right. So he and I have been working on a little private project together, mm -hmm. which is a podcast about the goodies. <gasps> oh, so we're you have me interested. <laughs> well, I know a lot of Doctor Who fans, particularly in Australia, where these two shows were often shown side by side there's a really big overlap and we were talking about the goodies with a couple of our other friends we said you know what this series is just perfect for a podcast to go through every episode and talk about it so we've got together with a couple of other people including rob from 42 to doomsday and there'll be some others that you may recognize along the way and we're going through every episode of the goodies on our pirate goodies podcast and <laughs> we've recorded a few episodes we're editing them at the moment and they're going to launch shortly so if any of our listeners are interested in the goodies, uh, go and check out our Twitter, uh, which is at Pirate Goodies PC, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Pirate Goodies PC, and 
start um, following us and you get some notifications of when we launch our episodes, hopefully very soon. Uh, I'm sitting here with a big smile on my face, which you can't see because we don't video call when we do these things. (laughs) But I love the goodies and you're calling it pirate goodies because in one episode, Graham started a pirate radio station outside of English waters. Uh, I'm assuming that's why you're calling it that. And, you know... I am a huge goodies fan, and of course, here in Australia, we got to see goodies all through the 80s, um, you know, at 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night or whatever it was, and a lot of people taped it, and to date, not many have been released on DVD. I think there's been two releases which had like four or six episodes apiece. Am I thinking correctly on that count? Yeah, I think there's been two um, of what you'd call the BBC goodies, and then there was one DVD special of just the ITV or LWT season that they put out right at the end. Yeah, and I think here in Australia there must be a lot of uh, content. Sounds like you might have a source of uh, VHS tapes, perhaps. Very possibly. And, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm your first listener. I will sign up to that. And people, this isn't a setup. This is the first I've heard of it, and I am very, very excited to hear yes. that. I no, love no, the I've, goodies. I've, we've gone for Rob's natural reactions here, so I'm very pleased they've been positive ones. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so we'll um, start our social media activity over this weekend. And as I say, we'll be launching fairly shortly. Fantastic. Well, uh, speaking of another new project that's getting off the ground, this isn't me, though. This is friend of the show, Miles Northcott. He's getting a project off the ground called Doctor Who's Line Is It Anyway? Um, Have you heard of this, David, or shall I? No, I, I don't know anything about it. Um, I know of Whose Line Is It Anyway. Is it any anything like that, or is it... In the sense of improvisation, yes. Right, okay. <laughs> now, most podcasts, of course, Doctor Who podcasts, talk about Doctor Who, but this one is going to remake Doctor Who. Every existing story is going to be recreated over time by an elite band of idiots, it says here, uh, with a totally improvised <laughs> comedic reconstruction which will work best when played alongside the story in question in exactly the same way as a, as a commentary. So, you know, they're fun to listen to, but I think if you actually put the story on the screen and see and hear these people, Miles Northcott and co, uh, actually improvising dialogue, it's going to make a whole lot more sense. Now, it's all due to start at a completely random date of 23rd of November. <laughs> <laughs> Although there will be a short explanatory episode the week before just to get people um, aware that it's coming and, and ready to listen on 23rd of November. And they're going to put it out through iTunes and SoundCloud. Now, don't just take my word for it or rely on me to remind you when it's on. They are at facebook.com forward slash doctor whose line is it anyway. And they spell doctor the, the full way you spell doctor, not just dr. And they're on Twitter at dr whose line. So check that out. I think it could be a lot of fun because we actually have a little clip that we're going to play after we finish up here. And uh, although people don't have the visuals, I think you'll be able to get a a sense for what's happening. They've renamed the episode. I'm sure you can tell what episode they're looking at. It's a very early one. They've renamed it The Garlics. And in, (laughs) in this episode, or in this clip that we're going to play, Ian has been shot by a garlic with a vodka ray and is now inebriated. The Doctor has just been interrogated and returned to his cell. So uh, we'll play that in a moment and uh, just, just take all that on board. It's, it's improvisation and I think uh, it could be a lot of fun. What, what are your thoughts on that sort of thing, David? I know you've not heard this yet or, or, or seen anything yet, but uh, what do you reckon? It, it, it sounds like classic Footlights performance comedy and I'll be very happy to check it out. Yeah, and I think people might even, uh, if you're a a Doctor Who podcast listener, you might even hear some regular um, 
people from both the UK and across in the US as well, and Canada. Um, oh, good. Some familiar, good. very familiar voices. Hmm. Excellent. All right, then. Well, if that's it from uh, from you and from me, David, I think all that I've got left to say is I'll, I'll see you next in class. Absolutely. I will see you then after the bell. <laughs> all right. Catch you then. Bye. touching my leg and I don't love you I don't love anybody I don't love you after that <sighs> bloody singing that you were doing when they brought us back here earlier on what dear oh dear has he sobered up yet has he no has he sobered up no no I love singing yeah oh, I don't know how much it means oh will you me. take get your hand off me moves man Get your hand off me moves. I'll no, touch stop you it. Run it over me, Tommy. Uh, it's on my leg. Oh, Why are you God, touching me? Oh, God, he's touching his moves. Okay, I'm getting a little nauseated. You know you like it there <laughs> on your leg. Somebody, Susan, can you get his hand off of me leg? Oh, God. It's because I'm on your wallet. Oh, no, no, stop it. No, get your yep, hand, get yep, your hand off me. Susan, now. this is you supposed to be doing uh, this. Maybe your wallet's up here. Oh, no, <coughs> come closer. Susan, kiss me. I love you, Doctor. I'll kiss you, Doctor. Oh, you. He seems very, very passionate about keeping his hand there. I don't understand this. How did he get so much vodka? I thought I was... Look at this. And now you're undressing him? Oh, God, I'm getting nauseated. Nauseated. Oh. Oh, I can feel my leg now. No, I can't. No, that's my leg you're feeling. Oh, okay. Makes a change from my bloody leg. What? What What about your bloody leg? Whose leg? You were feeling my leg up. Maybe if you just kept hitting your leg, it would you would be able to feel it eventually. Uh, I don't know what I'm feeling. Your leg. If you just you just kept hitting it and 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 hitting it, <laughs> then maybe you'd be able to feel it. That's a good idea. I'll try and hit it. And hit it. Yeah. 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 Uh-oh. And if you don't, I'll start hitting it. And I'll hit it. Uh. And I'll hit it. Yeah. And I'll hit it. Oh, yeah. I feel like I'm going to puke. Hello and welcome to the Letter Lords with me, Bob Fleming from the Proctor Who podcast. And me, Jim Cameron from the Crinoid podcast. Hello there, Jim. Hello, mate. How are you doing? I'm very well, so how are you? I'm uh, ticking along very nicely, thank you. Wow, how far we've come. This is a long way, Jim. We've done a lot of nattering about Doctor Who. Do you realise this? Uh, I do realise it. We started, was it April magazine we started on? Uh, April? No, it was, it was it? Just January, wasn't it? Surely. Was it? Jesus Christ, it's November issue we're on now, 504 of Doctor Who magazine. Yes. Oh, February, February issue we probably started, yeah. Yeah, wow, we've uh, just settling in now, aren't we? Uh, yeah, we're beginning to get the hang of it. <laughs> just about. Another couple we of years, take... we'll have it taped, I think. Seeing Rob will take the stabilisers off us. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, yeah, if you don't know already... Basically, we're the Letter Lords. Oh, 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 oh. And uh, we uh, discussed the Galaxy Forum in Doctor Who magazine, the letters that are wrote in there. Um, and should we just kick off, Jim? 
Yeah, let's do this. Do you want to uh, read the first one? Yeah, and it's from Phil Irwin, possibly a relation to Rob, we don't know, <laughs> sent in via email, and the headline is Proactive Peter. And basically it's about the wonderful Peter Davison issue, which we talked about in the last episode. And it just basically says, I echo Tom's letter from the editor. I was six when Tom Baker fell from the Faros Project satellite dish, and I found the moment... Oh, where we go? Uh, I found the moment. I think I've got a pop shield right in front of me. It's, <laughs> it's distracting me from actually reading. If you have um, it between your your eyes and the magazine, <laughs> that will be a problem. That was the issue there, Jim. Uh, yeah, uh, the moment has been prepared for, having watched since 1979 and not missed an episode since, and collected DWM since the v- uh, first month of the issue in 1980. My love of the show was clear but it was cemented and enhanced by the arrival of Peter Davison's Doctor. He was fallible, hopeful, energetic and enthusiastic, and from the first moments of Castrova to his heroic sacrifice in the Caves of Androzani, he was the perfect hero. So, big Peter Davison backslap there, mm. um, off the back of the interview. Davison's era. Should we do it? Let's do it. Do you want to kick on, Jim? Yeah, well, um, although I vaguely remember Pertwee, I was surprised and, and eventually delighted by Tom Baker's different portrayal. Hmm. So Baker was really my doctor. Uh, he's the one I really got into. So when this young upstart arrived, <laughs> you know, I was slightly in two minds of the announcement. You know, I, I actually thought by then it was time Tom Baker went, to be honest. Um, yeah. I can't, I'd kind of gone off in, in seasons 16 and 17 anyway. And they were, yeah. they were like season 18. You, you know, he'd been there for ages. It was time for, for something else. I didn't quite expect it to be Peter Davison. But, you know, I liked him in uh, Creatures Great and Small. I also liked him in uh, Sink or Swim, the uh, sitcom, mm. which I think he then did a second series when he was playing the Doctor as well. So I kind of knew him already and liked him as an actor. Mm. Um, he seemed to me to be far too young, of course, having grown up with those other doctors and you know being aware well, of Hartnell and Trout. I was going to say it must have been a shock because, mm. like, unfortunately, I don't remember much of Davison from the television because I'm a bit younger than you, Jim. I don't know if I've mentioned this before. <laughs> uh, several hundred times. Yeah, it's probably getting boring for everybody. Um, <laughs> but I'd, so I don't remember much about it. But going from like you're saying, four older actors, and I mean like really older actors, to mm. literally someone that was. 29, was he, when he got the part? Was yeah, 29, I think, yeah, I think so. I think he'd not quite turned 30 yet. It must have been, mm, for, a, for a sort of Doctor Who fan had been watching since Pertway. Because obviously we'd had seven seven years of Baker, haven't we? Yeah. So it must have been a massive shock. It was, but um, it was a, very much a feeling of sort of renewal in Castrovalva because it was quite a different mm. sort of story as well. And it's really sort of bright and breezy and... Uh, you know, there's that weird kind of Escher stuff going on in Castrovalva with everything flipping about and the, the master masquerading as a poor Treve and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it felt like a real shot in the arm for the the show. I can remember how it felt at the time. Yeah. And of course, you had four to do himself to that one, <laughs> which uh, you know, dropped the uh, baton for a bit. But that was an interesting portrayal by Davison because that was the first one he recorded. Yeah, I was going to say it was the first one, wasn't it, before... Like Matt Smith didn't record like a later episode as the first one, so he could get into it, so it would look all right when it got going, kind of thing. So yeah, that's the idea, you know. So he knows where he needs to end up by the end of Castro Valva, you know. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, he's much more quirky in Fort of Doomsday. It's a very interesting portrayal if you watch it. Perhaps one of the only interesting things about Fort of Doomsday. But uh, <laughs> he also, I believe, did the visitation before Castro Valva as well. And again, that's a very yeah. interesting portrayal. It's one of my favourite portrayals by him. 
but then he kind of settles into a detail that person he wrote that describes really you know fallible hopeful energetic enthusiastic yeah describes it perfectly really i think in that is davison's doctor mm. it's it's a weird one because he gets reputation as being bland i don't think so much anymore i think it's weird you know like people like fashion for example mm. like the 80s came back into fashion you know like people what the war quite yeah. recently and now it now it's the 90s again now so it's sort of like this this sort of 20 30 year cycle and now he's sort of respected in the it was always the top four if you see what i mean like hartnell Troughton, pertwee and baker mm. and he sort of snuck in there now into the classic doctor respected do you know what i mean yeah i think so but prior you know and maybe even I mean, not so much now, but he was this bland doctor. I don't know if it's because he was wearing literally a beige buffet. I mean, his, his costume, like, I, I like his costume, but it is a beige buffet. It, it just mm. says if you, uh, that's probably what led people to sort of say he was a, he's a bit of a bland doctor because of his costume. I don't know. Mm. But he's a fantastic actor. Yeah. That is, first and foremost, a proper actor. And, I can't speak from the time. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the change at the time. But I can speak from the videos I got when I was a kid and obviously the DVDs, which I've, you know, got all of them. I remember getting them. And I know we've, I'm not going to go on about with Baker, but the, the first three seasons of Baker, amazing. Went really crap for three seasons. And his final season, I adore it. And I've said it before. Mm. It is sort of taking it into the sort of Davison era, isn't it? That yeah. sort of final season with Christopher H. Bidmead, which I'm a big fan of. Now, I know not many people are. I, I like most of it, yeah. Yeah, I like his sort of science look at stuff, although it might be a bit complex and sometimes a bit what you want about. It's I, I think it's good, solid Doctor Who. So the Legopolis, well, in fact, the Keeper of Track and Legopolis and Castrova came out on a, a triple box set, didn't they? Yes. And I, I just adored them, all of them three. thought they were absolutely brilliant. Mm. And then, like you say, Fall to Doomsday, it was a shift, wasn't it, from that sort of triumphant of awesome Doctor Who, in my opinion, really. Because it was quite a big continuing tale, wasn't it? Do you know what it I mean? Was, the, yeah. the, the three of them. And, I mean, I think his era is strong. The only thing I think is weak, for me personally, is the assistants. Obviously, we know there was too many on the TARDIS. Mm. I'm Adric's biggest fan, as we all know. <laughs> I'm not Tegan's biggest fan, as we all know. I am a fan of Nissa, though. Okay. And when we got to, what was it? The Ark of Infinity. Mm. I quite like it. It's all right. It's not a bad episode. That was the one when it was just Nissa and um, the Doctor wanted. Yeah, it's a good one for Nissa, actually. Yeah, and I just I just thought, if they kept them two, <laughs> just as companion and the Doctor, it would have been brilliant, I thought. But I just think the crowd, the, too much crowd on a TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Too much, and too many big personalities and not so good actors. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that to an extent. I personally, I, I don't have a lot of time for Nissa. I think she's quite a bland character, in my opinion. And I think if there's a danger of the Doctor being considered bland, if he just had him plus a bland assistant, in my opinion, yeah, that's uh, not going to be particularly engaging or dramatic. I did like Tegan, although she's in the same school as Perry in the fact that, you know, what the hell are you doing there if you hate it so much? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know the Doctor was trying to get her home to start with, but, you know, she had chances to get home and then decided she wanted to stay, didn't she? Yeah. So, you know, when she says at the end of Resurrection of the Daleks, it stopped being fun. Well, you know, if it's been fun in the past, perhaps you should have told your face at some point because you never gave any impression that you were enjoying it before that. 
But but I think yeah. I think the sort of crowded TARDIS with the bickering and they're all bickering with the Doctor. They're all challenging him all the time. I know. I think that leads to making the Doctor look more vulnerable and I suppose bland in some people's opinions in the fact that he's, he's not ruling the roost like previous Doctors have in the TARDIS. Yeah, I think it's I quite I kind of like that sort of. He's taking care of him. Do you see what I mean? He's properly taking care of him, making sure they're all right when. Adric wants to go, you know, in air shock when he's doing his calculations and blah, blah, blah. They have a bit of a kick-off, but he's sort of like, the, he's more the sort of stepfather figure. Do you see what I mean? No, older brother or something. Oh, yeah, older brother, you know, like, oh, you, you know, you're not my dad. You know, so it's kind of like they're, <laughs> they're, try, they're trying to, I don't know, you know, completely agree with what you're saying, but he does care. Whereas if it had been Baker or any, pretty much any other doctor, he'd give him a sharp, short shift booted about the TARDIS, do you know what I mean? Yeah, well it's interesting you say that about the sort of father figure because they're all essentially orphans, aren't they? I mean, Nyssa is certainly an orphan. Mm. Tegan, you know, we only know about her aunt... Uh, aunt whatever. I was going to say called? Lavinia, but it's not, that's um, Sarah Jane Smith, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, I've slipped my mind for the moment, but her aunt is killed by the master as well. Mm. Uh, and of course, Adric, if he had any mum and dad, you know, uh, back on Alzarius or you know in the Starliner or whatever, yeah. so they're all kind of perhaps looking for a surrogate father figure, and they kind of find it, but you know they kick against him as teenage kids do against their own father, sort of thing. And they are, but it's just too much, isn't it? Because it's is too much. Yeah, it is too much. I mean, there's some really strong stories throughout the era as well. I think the only thing about, and it was the '80s fault, really, no one else's fault. Because some of the production was pretty good, mm-hmm. some of it was horrendous, <laughs> but it was so so brightly lit. Yeah, I think that's my issue with the eighties. If they'd have sort of just dimmed it down a bit, lighting mm. and such, which they never really did in Davison's end of Baker and Colin Baker. You know, it's just so bright. Yeah, you know, it was. It sort of led to the showing up of sometimes not great effects, but there was a lot of strong stories. There was the. The trilogy of what was the trilogy in this? Was it Wars and Undead, Terminus, and Enlightenment? That's right. Yeah, the Black Guardian trilogy. Yeah, that was class. Like I, I love that. I think it's brilliant. I think it's really dark as well in most of it. So there's a lot of strong stories in this for me. You also had the Five Doctors <laughs> in Davison's era, which again is brilliant. Well, it's interesting to see him really hold his own against those previous actors, yeah. And he and he does, because that's testament to him as an actor. It, yeah. And, and an awesome, nice guy as well. Mm. But there was some interesting... There's, there's some very interesting stories and takes in it, I think, throughout this. Stuff that I can't remember really seeing in Doctor Who before. You know what I mean? Like, Frontius was a bit weird. Yeah. And I really liked Frontius. And the Awakening, like, a little two-part... The little two-parts were great in this. You know, just a, just a forty-five minute episode of Doctor Who, like it is now. Yeah. What was it? You had the Awakening and yeah, King's Demons and King's Black Demons. Orchid. Yeah. And again, that was that was new because you didn't you have two parties in Doctor Who until this point, really, did you? Very early, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember thinking at the time that I think perhaps in his first season, uh, I got the feeling it was all getting a bit too cosy, sort of thing. Right. You know, the threats weren't particularly huge and there weren't many kind of shocks or anything like that. And then Earthshock came along. <laughs> yeah. And then like everything was you know, up for grabs after that. And certainly, as you say, it's quite a dark trilogy in the following season. Mm. Uh, and then you get Davison's era at its darkest in the, the final story, Caves of Androzani. But Frontis before that, again, is quite a dark story. So it felt a bit more dangerous again, I think, after Earthshock. 
And you also get to, I think the thing about the interesting, although we sort of say that TARDIS is too crowded and the, the companions weren't that great, you know, sort of in my opinion, really. You got Turlo. Yeah. So you had, a, you had a companion die. Then you got a guy that was trying to kill the Doctor, who eventually the Doctor forgave. Kind of a bit like he did with Clara when she tried to throw the, the TARDIS keys yeah. in the finale of season eight. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He sort of forgave him and brought him on board because he was under the influence of the Black Guardian. And I like, I mean, Mark Strickson is a fantastic actor anyway. Hmm. I think, anyway. Uh, much better than uh, Matthew Waterhouse, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'll get any uh, argument there. But so is a dead fish in my pond. So that's, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Bless him. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, having a companion wants to kill you and then forgiving him and then carrying on with him. Mm. I love Turlo. He gets a bit of a bad rap as well, but I think he's a great companion, interesting companion. Yeah, I think he is. I remember reading the Radio Times before Modern and Undead came out, and I think they gave a hint that they... Uh, the new uh, companion would be out to kill the Doctor. I thought, wow, what a fantastic idea. We've never had that yeah. before. Um, so it was breaking new ground. And I know, um, you know he does have his detractors, Mark Strix, and he does go over the top of it, uh, re- <laughs> referring back to Frontier, so he's yes. foaming at the mouth. But uh, he's always watchable and you know, really good value, I think. I always like to see him on screen. And a ginger, which is always good. I like yeah. the gingers. Well, why not? <laughs> I'm a ginger. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's a, for me, strong era of Doctor Who. There's the odd week story, but the these throughout all of Doctor Who, isn't there? So, mm, of course. But for me, highlights, without a doubt, best Sideman story in Earthshock, amazing. And one of the best Dalek stories in Resurrection. And in my opinion, possibly one of the best ever adventures of Doctor Who, The Caves of Androzani. Mm, yeah. It's a lot of strong stuff in this in his three seasons. And he, he kept it right just doing the three, I think. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems, you know, when you're used to people being around for a bit longer, or at least more episodes, because I think Troughton and Hartnell were both there for kind of roughly three oh, years, but they did God, so, yeah. so many episodes in that time. But All it, year, it, all year, wasn't it? Really? Pretty much, yeah. Uh, if you, yeah. Four-week break or something like that, that's it. So, yeah, it, it, seemed, it seemed at the time to be a fairly shortish tenure, because he not as short as uh, Colin Baker's after that, or in terms of episodes, you know, it was longer than Sylvester McCoy as well. But, yeah, um, yeah so I think he could have probably done another season, and I think he enjoyed the scripts a lot more in his third season, and uh, I think he said in retrospect that had they been like that in season two, he probably would have done four years, you know, because yeah. he decided at the end of season two he wasn't, he wasn't going to do four, he was going to stop at three. So uh, that would have been interesting. And I think history has been kinder to him if you like because um people look back i think with some fondness and uh, you know can pick out the good stuff that happened in that era and there was a lot of good stuff and i think people realize he he wasn't just a bland doctor he was he was very nuanced in his performance you know he was a very skillful actor so fantastic um, where he he wasn't like chewing the scenery like some of the other doctors may have done in the past Mm. and certainly did after, after him Oh god! You know, he he it was a subtle performance. It was a more realistic performance, as a result, I think, and uh, yeah, very enjoyable. And and it made it seem not so strange when he got people of the age of David Tennant, and then of course Matt Smith coming into the role because we kind of been in, down that road already. And yeah. um, I think both of those performances are informed by what Peter Davison did to varying degrees. So I think he leaves a, a very strong legacy. He does. I mean. Cave John Dazani is his best portrayal of the Doctor, without I a doubt. I think so, yeah. 
and if he'd, it's weird, and it? it's like right. This is my this is my encore. This is my final song, and it's going to be awesome. He could have continued the encore maybe for another season. God knows what his series season four of Doctor Who would have been like if he'd been playing the Doctor like he did in Cares of Zane. Yeah. It'd have been and it had the you know the strong story like he got from Bob Holmes. It would have been I don't know just out this world. Yeah, but it could well have been. He was the first human Doctor, I think. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, and I think that's where Tennant. Which is really weird because Tennant, I think, it was his doctor, wasn't it, Peter Davison? Yeah, and he's he's the most. I think he's you know him and Davison, you know Tennant and Davison are the most human doctors, if you see mm. what I mean. And it's really weird now that he's married to his daughter, and as a, it's just bizarre. Fifth that, and tenth and grandchildren and whatever bizarre, but yeah, that's Tennant's doctor, wasn't it? It is uh, very bizarre, particularly I think in Davison's new book. There's a picture of Tennant wearing Davison's Doctor Who <laughs> yeah, outfit. Yeah. I'm just hoping. That uh, Georgia doesn't ask uh, David to wear that during sexy time. That would just be too complicated. Will you wear my dad's doctor suit while we make love, David? (laughs) Oh, do I have to? Not again. (laughs) Get him freaky. (laughs) Uh, Right. So, yeah, big. I think it's been a big thumbs up from both of us, isn't it, with Davison's doctor? Oh, I think so, yeah, definitely. Excellent. Good. Right, on to the next letter then? Yes. Okay. Uh, Well, this kind of, again, is. Slightly connected to that big interview with Davison. This is from Mark Holding. Uh, he says, just two months after the amazing issue of DWM dedicated to Tom Baker, you spoil us by following it with a Peter Davison interview. Thanks to DWM, we now learn so much more about the days gone by and the people involved than ever before. Some might consider that the more we are spoilt, the more our memories are spoiled. In mm. childhood, we sometimes put our heroes on pedestals like gods who can do no wrong. But in this latest interview, we hear that Tom hated John. John hated Tom, Peter was horrible to Janet, Tom acts pettily, Colin gets cross, etc. The results of our thirst for knowledge could sometimes be considered saddening, but it's not really because the negatives only stand out because they're in a sea of positives, and Peter also had lots of nice things to say about all of the above. It turns out these gods are human after all, with all the quirks of personality that come with that. Mm. Yeah, I I mean, people are human, believe it or not, and... (laughs) It's not going to be what's on television. You know, these guys are actors. These guys are under a lot of pressure. There's always going to be a clash of personalities. It's like having seven singers in a band. <laughs> and I mean that sort of like, you know, the singer ordinarily is the biggest ego in a band because he feeds off the, you know, he gets the crowd going, he gets all, you know, he's the, the focal point, the attention point. Yeah. And the doctor is that. Now, if a singer... <laughs> The other singer starts getting more attention. There's going to be bitterness, but there's also going to be personality clashes because people are different. Hmm. And it's normal, it's natural, and I like hearing about it because it humanises and informs me of the Doctor Who world behind the scenes. I find it quite fascinating. Hmm. But it doesn't bleed onto the television. Does that make sense? So all the infighting, the fact that John doesn't like Tom and blah, 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 and someone hated someone and whatever else, it doesn't bleed on television for me. Apart from when we go from Davison into Colin Baker, because I've said this before, and I've maybe been a bit wrong in what I've said about Eric Saywood before. I'm not his biggest fan, but under Davison and the relationship he had with JNT, and he obviously liked Peter Davison's doctor, but didn't like, Colin Bacon's Colin Baker's doctor, mm. Colin Bacon. I don't know who he is. Um, so, so basically, what that was the detriment to the show for me. I didn't see much of it on television, any infighting or whatever in the background. But I saw it 
in Colin Baker's Doctor and mm. having a script editor who didn't like you playing Doctor Who was a massive detriment to the show. And people accused me in the last episode of being a Colin Baker knocker. <laughs> I, I'm not. I like Colin Baker. I like his Doctor on Big Finish Audio. I don't like his Doctor Who. And I mean, I don't mean him as the Doctor. I mean him as, well, his Doctor Who tenure. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it's two different things, yeah. But it's it's not him. I'm not targeting Colin Baker. Please believe me this in, in this, <laughs> because I'm not. But that, that infighting then was a detriment to the show. Do you see what I mean? Well, it certainly affected certain stories. I mean, it, it, the Eric Sayward, the ones that he wrote, I mean, you've got um, uh, Attack of the Cybermen, the Doctor's just wandering around for the first half of the story. And the same applies to his revelation of the Daleks. So he's just wandering about. He, he's, he'd rather just get on the story without Colin Baker's yeah. Doctor being involved in it. You know, just keep his, his input to a minimum sort of thing, which is bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, and focus on other characters and, and things yeah. like that. That was a detriment to the show. I can't really pick up on anything else that I've heard in interviews where I thought, you know, that was a detriment to the show. But that particular part was in the infighting. I mean, Doctor's not getting on after the event. That's kind of irrelevant. Until yeah, it doesn't, doesn't multiple, matter really. Yeah, multiple Doctor episode. But I think infighting in the team... Mm. I mean, look, in fact, no. I'm not going to say it was affected... It didn't affect his show, but Christopher Eccleston, mm. when he started out as a doctor, he left straight away <laughs> because of the bullying and the pressure. Because they, they didn't know what they were doing, basically, when they first started making New Who. And the lead actor just went, right, this is ridiculous. You know, these guys don't know what they're doing. Yeah. That's sort of come out recently. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it wasn't a detriment to Eccleston's series of Doctor Who. It's a detriment to his lifespan as the doctor, though. Yeah, it, I mean, I would have liked to have seen another series of Eccleston. You know what I mean? When he sort of mm. got looked back and saw his doctor and thought, well, I'll, yeah, I didn't do that so good. I'll try this kind of thing. But to just go, right, this is amateur. You know, when mm. they first started out, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? He, he obviously wasn't on board with the the project and just sort of going, right, well, everyone's learning. He's used to probably go. I mean, he's quite a highbrow actor, isn't he? Like quite a high-level actor. He's very professional, isn't he? He expects pro- yeah. professionalism around him, yeah. And when he doesn't get that, Kind of understandably, he's like, well, forget this. You know, I can't do this. But maybe it would be nice. Yeah, but things like that, that, that didn't bleed on the TV, whereas the this sort of Saywood, Davison, Baker, JNT sandwich did. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I did. And I think you can probably say to a much smaller extent that uh, Tom and Lala's problems uh, also spilled onto the screen. You know, there's scenes where Tom Baker won't even look at Lala Ward, you know, when they're just a, you know, yeah. in a two-shot or something like that. You know, if he's not looking at the other actor, you know, they're avoiding each other's gaze. It's, um, But I think it's not necessarily that noticeable unless you know what was going on. I mean, I don't think I noticed it at the time, say. What is noticeable is that he's taking the piss out of Graham Williams. Big that, time. Yes. And it was very naughty at Tom Baker, and he, he admits that. Yeah. But that definitely led to... Three seasons of pretty much terrible Doctor Who, with a fan- with a fantastic Doctor as well. Do you know what I mean? But he he yeah he proper took the mick out of Graham Williams. But Graham Williams should have been stronger, like GNT was in like Christopher H Bidney were, mm. and just said right stop pissing them out. We're going to make some proper telly. You know it's so that was probably that was definitely a detriment actually thinking about it when we look at in fact, when I think back now you're thinking yeah actually yeah I can see that was why that was a detriment to the show <laughs> it was allowed to continue for in, in Colin Baker's case two years mm. Tom Baker's case three years you know 
yeah, yeah, it, it isn't good. You know, it, it actually affects the output, or even as you said, how long a doctor stays in the role. Yeah, you exactly. Know, it's um, yeah, that, that's a massive impact, isn't it? With people just not getting on. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, in retrospect, I, mean, I don't see anything wrong with people spilling the beans long after no. long after the event that they didn't get on with people. I mean, it's quite. You know, when you're when you're as invested in the show as people like us are, and you know you're you're always looking for a bit of information you didn't know, then you know once you've got all the factual stuff and you know all the behind the scenes stuff in terms of the actual production, you know all that's mm. left is the gossip. Isn't there? No, exactly. And it is, you know, rightly or wrongly, it is fascinating. I think it's brilliant, and I, it, like like I think we've said before a few times, these interviews at DWM Doctor Who magazine have been doing with Tom Baker and Peter Davison and people, they're so honest and blunt. And that's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear my doctors being a politician. I want to hear him saying, this is what it's like to be Doctor Who. And this is what it's like to be in Doctor Who. And that's what I want. It's ace. I think it's great. Mm. It's it's brilliant. And it's also nice when you've got a lovely tale. Like, for example, no one has ever slugged off Nicholas Courtney. Mm-hmm. or Elizabeth Sladen, or these awesome people that we love. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But you can, you can see why someone would be infuriated with John Pertwee and Tom Baker and Colin Baker. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Because that, that's the kind of guys they are. They sort of bring it on themselves, whereas Davison didn't. Mm. He had something about him where he knew just to get on with people and how to pitch it right. That's why he was... The, he's probably the most professional of the doctors in the acting world. That's why he continued to work and get so much work thereafter. Do you see what I mean? I'm previous as well. Yeah, he's ne- it's never been the big I am, has he? Ever. He has a lot of leading roles, actually, in what he does. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he doesn't seem to lord it over other people. You can, well, Tom Baker certainly did. Oh, uh, yes. John Pert, who was very insecure, but you know, <laughs> and at times would... Uh, I think he was quite... He liked a happy working atmosphere, so he wasn't deliberately awkward, but... You know, he had that sort of fragile ego, which bursts into yeah. frustration and anger occasionally. Which, you know, which 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 Hartnell had. Hartnell was very. Oh well, yes, we've forgotten all about him. Yeah, I mean, he he had everything going on, but yeah. Troughton wasn't. And this is why you sort of liken Troughton, Davison, and you know, thereafter, sort of. You know, McCoy, the McCoy era is obviously my favourite as, as I go mm. on about. But you had quite a lot of harmony. You had just two people and a secretary on the team. Yeah, you know. Andrew Catmull, JNT, and and then, yeah, let's just, just have some fun with it. No one cares anymore. So let's try and do something good. And yeah. they did at that point. Do you see what I mean? Whereas yeah. I think under Colin Baker, there was a lot of pressure and a lot of infight, a lot of crap going on. And that led to the detriment of his era. Yeah. And I think um, people always say that the best doctors, uh, well, I suppose all doctors, some of their own character will come out. And, um, you know, the kind of nicest Doctors, you know, Troughton and uh, Davison are the nicest people, you know, yeah. the nicest people to work with, say, but, you know, and probably the nicest people as well, you know, but, but however you want to qualify that. So it's no surprise that they appear pleasant people on screen, I think. It's the creative thing in someone, I think, really, as well. So, like, Troughton is an awesome actor. He had plenty of work before. He got plenty of work after. Because you just secure with his ability. He knew he could act, he knew he could do this, he knew he could do that. Davison was the same. Whereas I think like Hartnell, he was on his last legs, wasn't he? This yeah. was his last hurrah. Pertwee was a comedy actor trying to do a serious role and really, I don't know, he wasn't securing himself without a doubt. Mm. Um, and Tom Baker became, he got so big. You know, he, when he jumped into being Doctor Who, he really did. And 
people would laud him in the street. He just became, his ego got fed. Yes. And he, he took that on board more than you should. Mm. And also, I imagine alcohol and bits were involved as well. <laughs> they certainly were. <laughs> Whereas Davidson, again, was very successful and su- successful after. And Colin Baker, pff, he'd done Brothers, big success. Never really done anything since, apart from Pants Man with Christopher Biggins, I think. Or something like that. You know, he's, he's not done a lot since. I don't think he's done a lot of, of telly, but I mean, I think he does quite a lot of stage work. And he, to be honest, that is the kind of actor he is, really. He's... he's Loud! Yeah, well, his, uh, his way of acting is too big for quite an intimately shot show like Doctor Who. Yeah. Where he's out there trying to reach, you know, Rosette of the stools, you know, that's what he's best at. And and that's why both he and um, Bonnie Langford aren't, you know, weren't right for Doctor Who because that's not where their strengths lie. I don't think that kind of acting. No, musicals and, you know, theatre. Mm. Exactly. All right, well, let's uh, leave the infighting there. But we've... Uh... <laughs> We've got another letter which is um, on a similar theme, actually, so we're not leaving it there completely. Um, yeah. You can take this one, Bob. Yeah, Richard Marson uh, from London Town. Near where you're from, innit, Jim? Uh, <laughs> not too far away from the sound of Bo Bell's governor. How you sound like you now, then? That's like me doing you. That's, that sounds weird as well. You've changed me, Bob. You've changed me. <laughs> So I have that effect on many a man. Um, I was surprised, but not delighted, to see Peter Davis's comments about my... Uh, my so, so, so just to put some meat on this bone, <laughs> I said it again, my God. Uh, so Richard Marston wrote the biography of John Nathan Turner, okay? So yeah, comments about my biography of John Nathan Turner, 2013's uh, The Life and Scandalous Times of John Nathan Turner in the latest issue of DWM. Uh, one of the book's key conclusions was there was a absolute, it was, there was absolutely nothing Savile-esque about John. At the time of publication, making that clear was particularly important. Three years later, it bears repeating. If anyone who clearly hasn't read the book... So basically, I think there was a bit of, dare we say it, Savile-esque going on. But there wasn't, if you see what I mean. So, Jonathan Turner, renowned Florand... Fl- fl- I can't even say it. <laughs> fl- fl- <laughs> Thank you, Florist? Uh, <laughs> fl- 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 flower! Um, he, yeah, so he was a, a naughty man. You know, he liked to promiscuate. Is that a word? <laughs> uh, I just nope. made it up. It is now, I suppose. Brilliant. <laughs> Making it words. Um, with other men. A lot. And he got sort of brandished that he liked the younger man. But not... You know, sort of to get tarnished with Jimmy Savile. Let's let's put our cards on the table. To get tarnished with the Jimmy Savile brush, very wrong. And the fact that I think that came. I mean, you've read the book. I've not read the book, Jim. So mm. what's what do you think about the comments? Well, I mean, you have to bear in mind that you know they're working with age of consent there, which is much higher for gay men than it was for anybody else. So mm. you know what might have been considered illegal then you know, cannot sensibly be seen as illegal because that was an an unjust age of consent. Yeah. But I mean he wasn't mucking about with kids or anything. You know, these are people he was I don't think he was in there was no entrapment or anything like that. It was this one slightly dodgy anecdote in there where he probably went a little too far. But certainly I don't think there's anything happened against anybody's will and nothing happened in any way that could be sensibly considered underage. So it's definitely not Savile territory. I mean, he was slightly predatory, I suppose. But again, I don't, as I say, I don't think anything was against his will. And and to be honest, 
it's such a small part of that book, which is an absolutely addictive read. I couldn't, I literally mm. couldn't put it down. Um, I was really? reading it all the time. It's really, really fascinating. If you've got any interest in the JNT era, then you should read it because it's it's really it's really well written. It's incredibly well researched. Richard Master does a fantastic job on it, and it's very even-handed as well. You know, people like we were saying earlier. You know, people don't mind calling him out on the bad stuff, but you know, there's plenty of praise and and, and stuff about his you know, you know what a, a nice bloke he was and the camaraderie and um, how many people he gave a chance to in the business and all this kind of stuff. That um, it's he it, it comes across as a slightly tragic figure because how he was treated by the BBC. You know, overall, you don't come away from it thinking he was a, a monster. You certainly don't come away thinking he was a, a Jimmy Savile. No, God, no, no. And that, and that's this is the thing is it, in this day and age with Operation Neutrine and all that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong, I think it's absolutely appalling the people that were involved. Mm. You know, in doing what they did, and I can't even bring myself to say it because it's so disgusting. Yeah you know, abusing their position for sexual gratification with people they should not be exactly. at all. Yeah. JNT, what was his partner called? What was his husband called? I can't remember his name. Um, Gary Downing. Gary Downing. So they were both promiscuous. I got that word right. Hey. <laughs> In their relationships. And they would both go out and have a drink and flirt and whatever. And, you know, have, a, have, have the fun. But it wasn't with, like you're saying... Irrelevant of the gay consensual age, because that doesn't matter, does it? You know if you're gay from a very young age, I imagine. I'm not, Jim, by the way. I know you're not, so it's it's hard to say, but you, you know what sexuality you have from a very young age. It's not illegal. He had some fun. He got pissed. He took some whatever. You know, he was, he was in bloody television production. Yeah. You know, yeah, having having party times and going to showcases and all that kind of stuff. And, and they were both him and his partner were both sort of the same in doing it, but no one got hurt in the making of JNT. Everyone had a good time and a lot of people had a lot of fun and he brought a lot of happiness to a lot of people's lives. Mm. So yeah, big up JNT and he's definitely not in that category or bracket as these disgusting monsters who were under the guise and known about in the BBC. He was a bit of a hero and a gent and a focused man. Yes, he liked a good time, which maybe sometimes made him lose his focus at work. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that was it. That was it. He was a party time. He knew his stuff. He was a clever guy, nice guy, give a lot of people a lot of good chances. Yeah, he's gone with it. Mm. Yeah. But again, he said, you know, you can listen to his memoirs, which are also interesting. And I think uh, it's a big finish of got him reading, you know, an audio book read by him of his own uh, memoirs, which is interesting as well. But as we were saying earlier, um, it's good to get the stuff that won't make it into a, an official Big Finish interview or a, an official interview in DWM, as they used yeah. to be. Now they're a bit more yeah. warts and alls, and, and, and we like it. So, you know, even if you think you know everything about J&T, if you haven't read that book, you know, you don't know the half of it. So it's such a, a wealth of interesting material in there. Yeah, I mean, he's not he's certainly not a saint. You know, he's he's, yeah. he's been unpleasant to people, and people have been unpleasant to him. You know, he's a human being. But, you know, he's uh, he comes across as, you know, a good bloke that was a bit wayward at times, went off the rails here and there and, and was badly treated and and didn't get the opportunities he perhaps deserved and, at the end of his career. So but it's a, a terrific book. I do highly recommend it. Bit of a rock star, really, wasn't he, GNT? He was, yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. Top man. Right, cool. We're coming towards the end, Jim. Mm. And you want me to talk about something else. <laughs> 
Yeah, I want you to tell me if you thought class was class. When's Torchwood coming back on again? Is, it, um, <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> oh, you, better, you better ask Barrowman. He seems to be the only one who's banging the drum. Um, oh God, it's it's hard for me, this, because people have made a show that I never wanted. I can't see the point in it being made. It's not for me. I'm a man. I'm not a little kid. Or, sorry, young adult or teenager or whatever they are. <laughs> it's Hollyoaks with aliens. Not great acting. It's obviously cheap because it's on BBC Three anyway. I can't review this. I can't comment on it. I don't want to be derogatory to it because it's not It's not meant for me, Jim. Do you see mm. what I mean? Yeah. I just think, what's the point? I really struggled to get through episode one and it cheapens the Doctor as well for me and it cheapens Doctor Who because Capaldi was in it for a bit and he was there just to kick it off and that. It reminds me a little bit of a show that I watch just for um, a guilty pleasure. I don't know if you've ever seen The, the Librarians. <laughs> it's a sci-fi, it's on Sci-Fi Channel. It's terrible, really poor production values. <laughs> it's horrible, but it's sort of good because it's that way. And it was basically the premise, the two series have done was a premise of three really, really bad films um, where a guy, I can't remember his name, if the character it was like an Indiana Jones dude, and in the first episode, he's in it because he's the dude that people know from the f- three really crap films. And then he hands it over to some kids and then it's just it's really crap and there's a leader dude. And it was just that for me, but worse because it's cheap in my TV show. And that's what I don't like about it. Sarah Jane Adventures, it was for kids. It was cool. You had the Doctor in it and it didn't. It kind of cheapened the Doctor, but it didn't because it was for kids. Whereas this is just that, it's gone too far. I don't get it. I don't understand why it's come out. And I think it's just not for me. So I've not watched episode two. I struggled through episode one. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. So not a fan. The woman, the leader woman, who's the men are probably take care of me or something in the future, the sort of pointy woman. I don't know what you call her. <laughs> pointy woman. The pointy woman. She was horrible. <laughs> I, yeah. Some dude playing football. This is the thing I've got to review for Proctor Who, and I can't because it's not for me. And I don't want to slag it off because it's not for me. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. I can't review something that's not... It's for kids or, like, young adults, whatever they call them, I don't know, 16 to 20, I don't know, whatever they are. It's not for a man. <laughs> and it's not for a Doctor Who fan man. It's not a sense. man's programme. It isn't, though, but it's like... For me, personally... It, like I say, it cheapens Doctor Who. It cheapens Capaldi's Doctor when he has to come in and he's made to come in and just make up some crap story why he's there. And Although he did look cool and his solid screwdriver looks ace. I like his hair all bushy. And he was very fun. And yeah, so there's my class review. I'm not going to watch any more <laughs> because it's not for me, as I've said, Jim. Mm. I'll hand over to you for an intelligent... <laughs> person who can review a TV show. <laughs> well, blimey, there isn't one you'll have to make do with me. Uh, yeah, well, I have to say, I disagree with almost everything you've said. Good. That's the first time we've disagreed with I think, isn't it? That's good. Probably, probably, yeah. yeah. Um, except, I mean, I, I do think the weakest link in the show is the pointy woman. The pointy woman's horrible, isn't she? <laughs> um, yeah, what's well, in Miss Quill? She's just seems is that what to, she's called? Yeah, she just seems to be in a different show to everyone else because she's playing it like 
slightly sort of pantomime villain, isn't she? Whereas everyone else is playing it straight. I would disagree with you about the acting. I think the kids are excellent. Right. I think they're very, very good actors. I'm very impressed with them. Cool. And I think over time, I did struggle with part one, actually, like you did. You know, I was watching it on TV on iPlayer. Mm. I clicked on the information just to see how far we were in. And we were halfway right. halfway through, and I was really bored uh, at, yeah. that, at that point because I think the first half of that first episode is really clunky. It's it's trying way Awful. too too hard. Yeah. The dialogue is atrocious in places, terrible, and it's lots of you know really badly done exposition and stuff like that. But mm. having said that, um, I think the second half was much better. I don't think I, I enjoyed Peter Capaldi's performance. I thought it, it was good. It felt a bit odd to see him arrive in that environment, which didn't feel like Doctor Who to me. Yeah, that's what, that's what I mean. I mean, I maybe used the wrong word, cheapen, but mm. I don't know. I just, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you should be worried about it cheapening the Doctor because, you know, Doctor Who exists, you know, outside of class. I mean, you God, it does, yeah. You don't even have to consider it canon if you don't want to. Mm. You could just watch Doctor Who and just forget that class ever happened. So I don't see that it should cheapen, you know, Capaldi's Doctor. I wouldn't... You'll forget about class soon enough, and it'll be as if it never happened. Yeah, but I I thought the production values were good as well. I thought the effects were good. It's extremely derivative, and they even go so far as to name check other, you know, fantasy programs, you know, just as a shorthand to describe what's going on in this one. You know, because they've got the what they call in the second half a bumhole in space, <laughs> which is this crack. You know, they refer to yeah. the, the Hellmouth from Buffy. And a couple of other things I wasn't familiar with. But, you know, they, there isn't much new here, if anything. So there's, I, nothing, there's nothing new, Jim. That's why I'm holding back a bit, because, again, it's not for me. But what is the point of this show? It's just Buffy or all the other things that have been out before. It's so... It's just been done to death, this idea. Well, I think, if you're asking what the point of the show is, I think, strategically... If it has a strategic point, it's to pick up the younger viewers that Doctor Who is losing. You know that? Yeah. The sort of late, mid to late teenager, early adults. To get them back on Doctor Who? Yeah, if they're getting to that, they might start watching Doctor Who again. I think that might be one of the reasons they're doing it. It's also a big mark, isn't it? You know, that kind of teen mm. teen fiction stuff. You know, with all the um, Hunger Games, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's a big genre now, and you know, there's no reason that BBC shouldn't try and... Uh, exploit that I, don't, I can't see it with this Jim I mean I, I've not watched episode 2 and, I, and I'm going to have to because we're reviewing it on the Pogtrue podcast but yeah it might 2 improve. is better I would say 2 is better because, yeah yeah because they're not um, it's much more of a, just a, a straight narrative straight right. straight story um, it looks like it might be kind of monster of the week this thing because you know various creatures seem to get in through this bum hole in space bum hole in space whatever they call it uh, <laughs> but it's not trying so hard it's not so the dialogue isn't quite so clunky you've got to know the characters a bit better and some very yeah. good performances in in okay. the second half in fact that might be what I'm, I'm basing my praise on on the actors well for. I'll definitely go back and watch episode two now because of you so thank you, Jim. <laughs> but no, it's it's. I can see the point of it. You've just pointed out the strategic point of it, the fact that it's trying to get the younger, older kids back into Doctor Who. I can see the point of it now. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah. But it's still not for me. No, but I will watch enough. episode two. I will watch episode two on our next episode because uh, we'll have probably a, it'll probably finish by the time we do our next one, won't it? It'll be near the end. I will 
hopefully eat my hat. We'll see. Hmm. Yeah, well, as I say, I mean, it is, you know, you're absolutely right. It isn't aimed at us. It's aimed at people who are substantially younger than than you, and even more substantially younger than, <laughs> than me. But as I was saying before, I mean, it's very de- it's very derivative. But if it is derivative, then it's going to rely on you getting to like the characters, and I'm beginning to like the characters. So um, for me, yeah, I'm I'm quite happy to you know keep watching. Yeah, I think there's been a few shows, TV shows in the past. For example, The Wire. Mm. Don't know if you've seen it before. Oh, lovely! Brilliant. Yeah. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Love it. It took me five, so pretty much halfway through season one to get into it. But I, I persisted with it because people said it was so good. Yeah. And it took me so long to adjust to the characters with that. So it was like five mm. hours of TV before I was then, bang, click on board. Yeah. It might be the same with class. Because I'm not saying that the... I just don't get the characters. Do you see what I mean? I'm not, yeah. I'm not an athletic footballer. I'm not really clever. I'm not middle class, you know, I'm not black, I'm not Asian, I'm not, I'm just a sort of working class white boy. Do you see what I mean? And that's what, so I don't associate with the characters in the show. Actually, that is probably the only demographic uh, they haven't hit with the main characters. Yeah, it's a bit box ticking again, isn't it? So, you know, make sure we've got this, make sure we've got that. Yeah, and I'm not knocking the fact they've got, <laughs> a multicultural or certain level of you know all these levels of people in there or whatever, but it, you know the fact if they maybe had a working class white lad in there from the north of England, I might associate <laughs> with it a bit more because that'd be me with a big ginger person. beard. <laughs> yeah, but I might associate <laughs> with it a bit more. But because it's just for young people and the the cast, I've got no association with. It's probably yeah a bit. I don't know. Well, I can't I can't say I actually relate to any of the kids. I just kind of like them for who they are yeah yeah and because they you know the acting's good and I, they convince me that they're real people unlike miss quill i know she's a, an alien but it's just a poor performance i think but pointy woman miss quill or whatever <laughs> she she quills a point that works but this is again this is so obvious in the plotting and the story she's there to be hated and then eventually at the end She'll grow to like the kids and everyone will be nice. Yawn, yawn, yawn. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And that it's just obvious stuff throughout the whole of this. It's I could have believed it in it. It's, I don't know. Anyway, well, I'll, I, I'll I, up, well, I'll I have to say, it. yeah, I had to force myself a bit to watch part two. I left quite a, a distance between the two, you know, considering they both were there yeah. to watch. But yeah, it, it, I think episode two changed my mind really. And, and uh, so I'm hopeful. Right, I need to watch episode two then, Jim. And I will watch it off Good. your. Sort of, yeah, good. Awesome. Anyway, we've done a long podcast tonight, Jim. Jesus. Mm. So we hope we haven't bored anyone to death out there. (laughs) It's been an absolute pleasure as always. And likewise. Yeah, so thank you very much for listening to us. Yeah, I hope you've enjoyed this extra special um, episode of The Letter Lords. I've been Bob Fleming from Proctor Here Podcast. And I've been Jim Cameron from the Crinoid Podcast. Thank you very much. And we'll speak to you again in November. Well, here we are at the end of the 10th Doctor Who show. My thanks to the contributors, Jim and Bob, my co-host David, of course. And, well, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Normally in these outros, I thank everybody because we used to have a lot of segments in the show. Now those segments are their own programs on the channel. Um... I guess this outro is becoming a bit redundant. Next episode probably won't be here at all. Gosh, the end of an era. Thank you, everyone. Um, While I have the chance to talk here on my own for listening, I know there's 
10 zillion Doctor Who podcasts out there, so to be listening to me talking right now, you are making a very conscious decision to listen to us, and that's fantastic. If I could ask any of you who are iTunes users to drop us a review on iTunes, you can always write to us at hello at the dwshow.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter and uh, have a conversation there. I'm really looking forward to what we're going to do in the future with our new Doctor Who Show Presents brand, uh, currently doing the class um, episode reviews every week, and in the future we may be doing some interviews under that brand. We'll obviously be reviewing Doctor Who under that brand as well. And ongoing, we've got the A to Z, we've got Letter Lords, we've got the TARDIS Library, so many new books coming out as well as the Titan Comics to review. I just don't know where to start or stop. Um, maybe now would be a good place to stop. Thank you all. We'll see you next month on the Doctor Who Show. Keep listening to the feed or referring to the website for new episodes of all our other programs. And, uh, yeah, thank you again. Cheers. You've been listening to the Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.